0: Hello and welcome, I'm Andrew Veith, and this is Rebel History. The year is 1921. The place, a beautifully furnished, dimly lit boardroom at the Boeing Company. The rich, earthy smell of cigar smoke wafted through the dimly lit boardroom. Wisps of gray smoke danced from the ends of finely rolled Cuban cigars at the fingertips of men in perfectly tailored woolen suits. The naval insignia pinned to each of their shoulders, glistening proudly, the men, centered around a stately mahogany desk. Behind it sat a tall man in a high-backed leather chair. His meticulously combed hair was complemented by a three-piece Brooks Brothers suit and rounded spectacles. He lit a cigar of his own then crossed the room to a dark wood bar against the wall, pulling out a crystal decanter full of maple-colored single malt whiskey. Despite the bad news, drinks are on me today, boys, he said as he poured a round into heavy crystal tumblers. He peered above his spectacles and extended a glass to the man in front admiral i think you're going to like this one new shipment came in last night the admiral smiled as he swirled the glass the aroma of canadian whiskey permeated the room bill i'll miss these meetings and your whiskey collection you've been of great service to your country And you make one hell of an airplane, cheers, to Boeing. The Admiral paused. The reality of the situation started to sink in. And the room grew quiet. To break the silence, the Admiral interjected lightheartedly. Bill, you've always been an innovator. I'm sure you'll think of something new. Shoot, if things get that bad, just start selling some of this stuff, he said jokingly as he downed the last of his drink. Bill Boeing stepped outside to clear his head, a slight buzz from the whiskey pleasanting his demeanor. He walked across the once busy grounds towards the river's edge. On it sat a large red barn silhouetted against a backdrop of emerging stars and a slightly visible crescent moon. He approached the barn, taking a moment to admire the scene. He looked up and smiled as he read the bold white letters adorning the top of the building. Boeing Airplane Co., it read. He pushed open the door and inhaled a long, slow breath through his nose. The once vibrant aroma of oak and maple was no more. Disappointedly, he looked around. Memories of the production line that once filled these walls flooded his brain. Just a year prior, the machines were fully staffed, typically running into the early hours of the morning. But tonight, They sat idle with not a soul in sight. He shot a glance to the empty upper deck where the chatty seamstresses used to sit and hand-stitch the canvas wings of the planes. A lonely feeling crept over him as his gaze was not met with the usual stare from one of the big-bosomed blondes. He pulled out a stool from behind one of the lathes, took a seat, and reflected on the current predicament of his company. At the outset of World War One, he had single-handedly secured a contract with the U.S. Navy to build 50 Model C wooden warplanes to fight against the central powers of World War I. But he failed to secure any additional contracts, and the war was now over, killing the demand for almost all aerospace products. There would be no more big contracts with lavish budgets and no need for faster and more advanced warfighter capabilities. Bill and the Boeing Airplane Company faced a crossroads. He needed to come up with a way to diversify the business in order to survive. His initial thoughts were simple, return to the origins of the company and go back to shipbuilding or at least engines. It had really only been a few years since they had made the change from building boats to building planes anyhow. He knew firsthand the rum running business was booming and there was a market for fast boats. The future was awash with possibility. The only thing certain to Bill Boeing at that moment was he'd need more whiskey, much more. And with that, he headed back to his office to phone Roy Olmsted. Just months before federal prohibition was signed into law in 1919, Roy Olmsted, an imposing young man from Nebraska, was named Seattle's youngest police lieutenant. His men dubbed him the baby lieutenant. He'd grown up on his parents' farm and left home at 18, making his way to Seattle, where he got a job at the Moran Brothers' shipyard. Three years later, he joined his two brothers, Frank and Ralph at the Seattle Police Department. Roy was a tall, broad-shouldered man whose friendly but serious manner made him quite popular. In the department, he was respected for his intelligence, initiative, and responsibility. He often appeared in court to recommend probation for certain criminals in place of jail time. He was well-reasoned and spoke with authority so the court often acted on his recommendations. His ability to sway a jury garnered attention, and soon he had a lucrative side income testifying for criminals who could afford to pay. Olmsted witnessed firsthand the mistakes of early rum running operations. Poor organization, lack of leadership, naivety to police protocol, and a lack of vision he also saw the huge sums of money these early smugglers were making, and knew there was an opportunity to make even more. Roy recruited some of his fellow officers and trusted associates, setting to work on his bootlegging operation. Soon his double life would come to a head, around 2 a.m. in the early morning hours of March 22, 1920. Under cover of darkness, Olmstead's crew unloaded a shipment of Canadian whiskey from a tugboat at the Meadowdale Dock north of Seattle. All of a sudden, spotlights shone on the dock and chaos ensued. Gunshots rang out all around as the men fled from the dock. The Prohibition agents had camped for days in the woods overlooking the dock and quickly barricaded the roadway out, trapping the men in. Roy jumped in his car, barging through the bushes to the side of the barricaded road, agents opening fire as he sped by. Roy escaped, but not before one of the agents recognized him. Roy's men were arrested, including police sergeant TJ Clark and 10 others. The agents also seized six automobiles and over 100 cases of Canadian whiskey. It was the largest bust of its kind up to that point. Roy was forced to surrender the next day, dismissed from the force and fined $500. With his police career over, Olmsted went all in on rum running and set to work expanding his operation. Roy found 11 men, most of them prominent Seattle businessmen, who all agreed to stake his operation for $1,000 each, he retained the services of an attorney, Jerry Finch, a bright man who was constantly giddy with the adventure he found himself on. He then proceeded to assemble a crew of smugglers, bookkeepers and salesmen, some of which were former policemen. For Pacific Northwest smugglers, Canada was the most logical source Quality alcohol. Canada had its own bout of prohibition during World War I, but it was over before the end of the war, just in time to supply the throngs of thirsty folks south of the border. The rugged and remote coastline of the Pacific Northwest is a rum runner's paradise. Jagged cliffs strewn with dense evergreen trees and endless hidden coves to dart in and out of. The San Juan Islands were sparsely populated and nearly impossible for the small, outdated Coast Guard fleet to patrol. Entrepreneurial Canadians set up export houses to fill orders for the smuggling operations. Young adventurous men in British Columbia grabbed the family yacht or banded together to buy a small transport ship and delivered loads of whiskey to the islands along the U.S. border, earning themselves the nickname the Whiskito Fleet. Located around Victoria, Vancouver Island, and mainland Vancouver in British Columbia, the small alcohol exporters soon decided to band together, forming a massive enterprise Called consolidated exporters. Realizing they had major leverage in the situation, Canada imposed steep taxes on any Americans purchasing alcohol or shipments known to be heading there. To avoid this, Olmsted hired huge cargo ships loaded with 2,000 to 4,000 cases of alcohol and had the shipping manifests doctored to appear like they were headed to Mexico, who had a trade agreement with Canada keeping prices low. Instead of Mexico, the ships would anchor just outside of US waters, often in the Harrow Strait between Vancouver Island and the San Juan Islands. Then the alcohol would be loaded onto the smaller, faster ships and run down into American waters. With this trick, Olmsted was paying 30% less than his competitors and was able to quickly develop a near monopoly as the only large-scale operation. Canada would eventually pass legislation preventing foreigners from buying from Canadian export houses due to pressure from the American government. In response, consolidated exporters purchased several massive ships and loaded huge amounts of alcohol before anchoring in the Harrow Strait. American rum runners could then dock with these mother ships as they came to be known and pick up their orders away from prying eyes. All details of the order were placed ahead of time with agents back on land. Avoiding paper trails whenever possible, sales were prearranged. The American rum runner would be given one half of a ripped dollar bill. The other half waited with the Canadian exporters aboard the mothership. If the two halves of the bill matched up, the liquor was released to the Americans. Rum runners would use speedboats modified to run quieter and faster to evade the outdated Coast Guard fleet. From the outset, catching the rum runners was a nearly hopeless pursuit their stealth ships commonly achieving 35 knots or more. The Coast Guard's flagship, the Arcata, by comparison, had a max speed of only 12 knots. Commanders would confiscate the fastest of the captured rum-running ships and outfit them for their fleet instead of letting them be auctioned back to the public. The deck was not stacked in the rum-runners' favor for long, however as the government commissioned 12 high-tech rum chasers that entered the fray in 1924. These sleek Coast Guard cutters featured powerful machine guns and the rum runners were forced to become even more innovative to survive. Local airplane manufacturer, Boeing, had a surplus of aircraft and aerospace parts left over from World War I. Industrious smugglers could purchase these parts relatively cheap and soon were incorporating powerful Liberty engines from fighter planes into their boat designs. Initially, the engines were offered for $500 apiece, but as smuggling rose in popularity, the price rose to $3,000 apiece and included a clutch and reverse gear. Much like the use of souped-up automobiles used by smugglers on the East Coast led to the modern-day NASCAR, these modified boats led to the popular hydroplane races of today. Boeing even produced their own line of 12 speedboats called the Sea Sled, all 12 selling out on the first day. All buyers paying in cash. At one point, Roy also purchased two seaplanes from Boeing and used them for surveillance of the Coast Guard fleet. Some smugglers operated on a per-job basis for wealthy customers, but the most successful typically entered into steadier arrangements with large operations like Olmstead's. Among the most successful and highly regarded among the rum runners was Olmsted's top captain, Prosper Grainick, who is said to have made over 400 trips, jumping the line, the smuggler's term for crossing the U.S.-Canadian border. Liquor was loaded on the speedy, rum-running boats by the case, or if the Canadian supplier was generous, he'd pack 12 bottles in a natural fiber gunny sack, padded by straw. They'd add weights to the bottom, so smugglers could sink the bags if they were being pursued. Then they could return at a later time and retrieve the sunken loot. The Olmsted operations, favorite spot for picking up cargo was small Darcy Island in the Harrow Strait off the coast of Vancouver Island. The small island was in swift waters and had a dangerous reef encircling it. It was also home to a Chinese leper colony. These factors all adding up to very few visitors. For good measure, Olmsted added the keeper of the leper colony to his payroll. The smugglers would usually arrive at the island with the setting sun and load up their cargo, then set off for the San Juan Islands under cover of darkness. The booze would either be stashed at locations among the islands or unloaded on remote docks around Seattle, Everett, or Tacoma. Then it would be driven to staging locations often parking garages or warehouses, before its final delivery to speakeasies, restaurants, and soda shops. Olmsted's operation purchased an idyllic country farm outside the city in Sunnydale and hired two Japanese immigrants to excavate an underground cavern below a garage on the property, entered via a trap door 600 cases at a time could be stored in the secret cache. Soon, they were making daily deliveries in Seattle of 200 cases of liquor and making profits over $200,000 a month, roughly 3 million in today's terms. The New York Times would later say he is truly a rum running king running one of the most gigantic, rum-running conspiracies in the country. A man of audacity and spectacle, Roy would have his men sail boldly into Seattle's docks in broad daylight, unloading their illicit cargo in trucks labeled fish or meat. Crowds would form as he bellowed with his signature deep, bellied laughter. (laughs) The establishments buying this smuggled alcohol took a variety of forms. Some were underground spots with secret passcodes needed to gain entry. The password was constantly changing and shared between in-the-know patrons. The Hong Kong Chinese Society was one of Seattle's trendiest spots for residents to flout prohibition rules. An upper-class crowd danced well into the night, enjoying the early days of Seattle's jazz scene. Even some of the early houseboats on Lake Washington served as secret meeting places for illicit drinking. Others of Olmsted's customers used restaurants as a front for their thriving alcohol services. John Henry Hamilton, or Doc as he was commonly referred to, was one of Olmstead's top customers. After Prohibition agents raided his first attempt at a speakeasy, Doc opened his famous Barbecue Pit, which, despite the name, was a classy establishment catering to seattle's well-heeled clientele the restaurant featured live performances by some of seattle's best jazz musicians of the day and was always stocked with top shelf booze another local favorite was the chinese gardens in the international district upstairs was a legitimate chinese restaurant with limited seating Those hoping to gain entry to the secretive establishment further inside were given a thorough questioning to ensure they weren't undercover agents. Once approved, you'd be ushered through the door to the bathrooms, and then through another door marked private. After this, there was a series of seemingly endless hallways and corridors until the faint sound of jazz rose slowly at the edge of hearing. Finally, patrons emerged at a hostess desk and were seated in a dimly lit room large enough for several hundred people. Secret exits were pointed out by waiters as they brought cocktails to the table. Those exits would prove a necessary precaution when Chinese Gardens was raided. Some of the customers and employees making an escape through the discreet passageways and into the neighboring hotel, exiting out the front door as nonchalant as possible. Olmsted's operation quickly grew into a robust enterprise. He bought a large ocean freighter to cut the cost of hiring one. The illegal business would come to be one of the state's top employers, with his small army of smugglers, bookkeepers, salesmen, drivers, phone operators, office men, and attorneys. Growing rapidly, the Olmsted operation moved almost entirely into wholesaling, selling to only trusted clients in large quantities. By 1924, Roy was a local icon, rubbing elbows with the who's who of Seattle society. And what turned into quite the scandal, Roy divorced his first wife, who it came out years later had been cooperating with prohibition agents against him. He purchased a mansion in the upper-class neighborhood of Mount Baker with beautiful views of the bay and married a vivacious young Englishwoman named Elsie Campbell whom he'd met in Vancouver dressed in finely tailored suits and homburg hat Roy counted among his friends and customers wealthy aviation entrepreneur William Boeing and liberal Seattle mayor, Doc Brown. Seattle newspapers reported, To the public, he was a bit like a rum-soaked Robin Hood, operating by his own code of moral and ethical protocols. None of his men carried guns, Roy reminding them, that no amount of money was ever worth a human life. Rum runners were infamous for watering down product, but Olmsted booze could be counted on as pure and of top shelf quality. His business relationships operated on trust and integrity. He explicitly avoided the rackets that often came with his industry, including prostitution, gambling, murder, and narcotics. He controlled the Pacific Northwest market by maintaining shrewd business practices and paying off police and lawmakers. Many joked that Olmsted commanded many more policemen as a bootlegger than he ever did as a police lieutenant. He had inside men in every station in the area and could call on them for information and favors at any time. These friendly cops further secured his dominance in the region by cracking down on his competitors as well as any moonshining operations. Next episode on Rebel History. We're gonna need a bigger boat, wiretapping, and a very peculiar party. Rebel History is written, narrated, and produced by Andrew Feith. Rebel History, shining light on the shadows of history and the rebels who dwell there.